today to Matthew chapter 2. And I'm very pleased that we were able to begin the study of the Gospel of Matthew during the month of December. As all of us know, Matthew talks about the birth of Jesus. And uh, Matthew and Luke both begin their Gospel accounts with the birth of Christ, while Mark and John don't start with that, but they start rather with Jesus' entrance into his public ministry. We've already had two weeks during this month to investigate the birth of Jesus. And what we've clearly learned from the first two messages is that Matthew is peculiarly interested in establishing the lineage of Jesus and that he is a rightful heir to the throne of David. That's his human ancestry. And the first 17 verses of chapter 1 deal with that human ancestry as it lists the names of those that were before Christ from whom he came. But Matthew is also equally concerned with presenting the divine ancestry of Jesus. And we don't find a list of names like we do in those first 17 verses of the chapter, but rather we find just one very majestic name. In verse number 18 of chapter 1, the Bible tells us there that Mary, his mother, was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost. And so that means that Jesus is both man and God. And Matthew wants his readers to make no mistake that Jesus is the Messiah King. He's an heir to the throne of David, but he has a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom because he's God. Now we come into chapter 2, and this also turns out to be reaffirmation of Christ's deity. This is the story about those wise men who came to see Jesus, the Magi. And when they searched him out, their very own words were, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And then they said, We have come to worship him. And so they acknowledged that he was human by calling him a king. But also when they said that word worship, they acknowledged that Jesus was divine. And so they believed that Jesus was the God-man. Now I'd like you to stand with me please as we read from God's word. A very familiar story in Matthew chapter 2 beginning with verse number 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And now Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country 
another way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we are so thankful for this Christmas story that we're able to read. Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes to truth today, and may we really see who Jesus is. May we understand that although he was born as a baby, he grew up to be a man, and he went to the death of the cross. Lord, that is what we're saved by. We ask you, Lord, just to speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the 2,000 years since Christ was born, there have been many liberties taken with the story of Christ's birth and about his death. Earlier this year in our trip to Israel, uh, we saw that in every place where there was some significant event that happened in the life of Christ, that they came there and they built a church on top of that place or built a shrine there to commemorate the event that took place. And most of the time, these churches that are built and the shrines that are built are really guesswork about the location. But in the middle of the uh, Middle Ages, rather, the Crusaders came and they built those churches and they built these shrines in all these places where they thought that these things took place. Now, for example, on the shores of Galilee, there's a very beautiful church there. It's called the Church of the Beatitudes. And this is where they guess that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's right there on the shores of the Galilee in a very beautiful spot. And then, of course, uh, you can go into Jerusalem and you can see many churches that are built there. One of those churches is the Church of All Nations. Again, a very beautiful structure that's built in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where they think that Jesus came and he prayed that prayer where he asked the Heavenly Father to take the cup away from him. And so they built this church there. And then, of course, you can go to Bethlehem and there you'll find the Church of the Nativity. And this is the site where they suppose that Jesus was born. And there are millions of tourists and pilgrims who come there each year. And they really don't have any idea at all that this was the place where the birth happened. And this picture that I'm showing you here on the left is where supposedly Mary gave birth to Jesus. And then on the right is where she placed him in the manger. And pilgrims will come and they'll kiss the floor of this church building in veneration because this is the place they believe that Christ was born. All of these different things add sort of a mystique to the birth of Christ. But I suppose that if there is any part of this story that has become so mixed up, it would be this story about the visit of the wise men. Every year you'll see the nativity scenes and uh, part of those scenes you'll find three wise men who came to visit Jesus. Back when I was in school, we could still have Christmas plays. And probably some of you remember that, but in our public school, we were able to have Christmas plays. And I remember when I was in the fourth grade that I played one of those three kings. So I had my blue bathrobe on and I had that paper crown that my mother had made for me and I came into that play or in that scene there and I placed a little gift down there at the base of the manger. I remember uh, reading a story about a little boy at Christmas time who like many people really didn't have any idea what Christmas was about. All that he knew was he got presents at Christmas time. And so someone tried to explain to him what that was all about. He said, well, there was a, a two people named Mary and Joseph, and they had a little baby, and people brought him gifts. And that's why we give gifts at Christmas. 
Well, the next Christmas came around, and he still didn't really understand what Christmas was about. So he didn't know if he was going to get any Christmas gifts that year. So he said, I sure do hope that Mary and Joseph have another baby. (laughs) Well, today, what I'd like to do is tell you the truth about the wise men. And I want to tell you the truth about this light. And I'm going to do something today that I've never done before. We're starting a little bit late. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to preach a two-part sermon for the Christmas message. So if you want to hear it all, you've got to come back next week. So I'm going to hurry as quickly as I can to get through the first part of this sermon. Now, what the truth is about the wise men. You know, as we think about that now 2,000 years later, the very first thing that I want to remind you of is that there is still a light. There is still a light that's pointing us to Jesus Christ. That light is the gospel. And it's Matthew's purpose as he explains the things surrounding the birth of Christ to point out to us that Jesus Christ is the one who came into the world to save us from our sins. And there is a light that is still shining that will always lead us to him, and that's the light of the gospel of Christ. But let's talk about the wise men today. What about the wise men? Well, number one, I want to talk about the search that brought them. The Apostle Paul made a very interesting statement in 1 Corinthians. He said, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, in most instances, that passage is certainly true. There aren't many people who have worldly wisdom who have actually come and placed their faith in Christ. But there was a time when there were many wise men who did come to Jesus. One of the erroneous ideas that we have about the wise men is that there were only three of them that came to worship him. In the nativity displays, you'll always see that there are three wise men there. Most of the time, if not always, those wise men are depicted as kings, and there are some that have even gone so far to give names to the wise men. Perhaps you've heard those names. They're Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. In the 12th century there was a Roman Catholic bishop who claimed that he'd actually found the bones of those three wise men. And so in a cathedral in Cologne, Germany, there's a place called the Shrine of the Three Kings, and this is a box that supposedly contains the bones of those wise men. There's only one huge problem with all of that, and that is that Matthew is the only gospel writer who tells us anything about the wise men, He says nothing about there being three wise men, and much less does he say that those three men were kings. Matthew says nothing about that. And so every year we sing that song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, or as we just sang a few moments ago in the first Noel, there's a line there that talks about those three kings that came reverently and bent down on their knees before Jesus. Well, we might as well sing Yo-Ho-Ho in a bottle of rum, because all of that is just some person's fanciful concoction of what actually happened. The Bible doesn't tell us those things. Now, it's more likely that there weren't just three wise men who came. There could have been 30 wise men. Some say that perhaps there were even 300 wise men who came to see Jesus. And that's because when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were looking for him, and they came into a city where there were thousands of people, and the Bible tells us that there was a great stir about it all. The people were upset about this. They heard about it. They were interested in it. And all Jerusalem, it says, was troubled at their presence. Now, if three men had come riding in on camels into such a large city, that wouldn't have piqued very many people's interest. But if there was a caravan 
And if there were 300 wise men who came to see Jesus, then certainly that would have raised the attention of the people that were there. Well, let's talk about those wise men. Who are these wise men? Well, we first of all know that they're seekers. We don't know where they came from. They were from some country that was east of Jerusalem. Matthew doesn't name the place of their origin. We don't know the exact location, but we do know that there was this group of men called wise men, called magi. In fact, that word that we have in our King James Version that's translated as wise men is actually the word magos. And from that word, we get magic. Well, how did these men that were so far away from Jerusalem know that there was a king that was born among the Jews? Well, the answer to that question might give us a hint as to where they were from. These were men who had been reading the prophetic writings that were in the Old Testament. They were familiar with prophecy. Now, not coincidentally, Matthew is the gospel writer who has more to say about Old Testament prophecy concerning Christ than any other writer. So these men had been reading Old Testament prophecy, and a key to their origin may actually be found in the book of Daniel. 600 years before Christ was born, Daniel, who was a prophet of God, was taken captive into Babylon. And there, Daniel was brought before the king, and he had to interpret a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had called all of the wise men that were in his kingdom. He gathered them all together to interpret that dream, but none of them could tell him what it was about. But there was a man named Daniel there, the prophet of God, and God gave him special insight into King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and so Daniel was able to interpret that. After that, Daniel found favor with King Nebuchadnezzar, and so he was promoted into leadership in Babylon. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, verse number 48, here's what we read. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, you'll notice there that Daniel was promoted to be the ruler over all the wise men. Now, that is the very same term that we find in the book of Matthew. These are magi. And Daniel was made the ruler over the wise men, over the magi. Well, Daniel became a very highly respected man in Babylon. And there are many prophecies that he made. And if you go and you read throughout the book of Daniel, you'll find many, many different things that Daniel prophesied about the one true God. And so it's very likely that these people that Daniel had been made ruler over, those wise men in Babylon, these are actually the ancestors of the wise men that came to see Jesus. Now, in addition to that, there was a heightened expectancy in the world, in the Roman Empire, that a leader was about to come, that some great person would be born, something great was about to happen. Now, no one knows all the reasons for that. It may be that God had simply put that feeling into the air. And so people thought, something good is going to happen, something great will happen, a king is going to be born. And these men may have felt that. And so they were expectant. They were looking through all the prophecies to see if there was some sign that would be given that this person would be born. Now, it's amazing then that these men who are so far away from Jerusalem way off maybe as far as Babylon, and they're truly seeking this one that God would send. And yet in Israel, it doesn't seem that there was anybody who was interested at all. There was nobody that was looking for the coming of the king. 
Now, the second thing that we note about these men is that they were scholars. They were truly wise men. They were very respected men. They were known in their country as men who were well-versed in subjects like mathematics, in agriculture, in arts and sciences. And these particular wise men were also scholars in the Bible. Because, as I said, they've been looking at those prophecies. Probably, they were Jewish proselytes, and they were people who did believe in one true God. Now, their knowledge of the one true God was not quite yet perfected, and they may not have had all the prophecies that were in the Old Testament, because when they came looking for Jesus, they didn't go straight to Bethlehem. Instead, they went to Jerusalem, and that's where you would expect that a king of the Jews would be born. He would be in the capital city in Jerusalem. So that's where they went to look for him. So their knowledge of this was not quite perfect. And do you know that is exactly the same way that God works in the gospel? You may, in fact, be very imperfect in your knowledge of the Bible, and yet the Bible teaches you can be saved. The Bible never says that you have to have a degree in theology, You don't have to memorize all sorts of things. And this is why Paul said there are not many wise who are called and there are not many noble. And that tells us that education itself is never an enhancement and neither is it a barrier to a person's salvation. God never saves anybody by their education. He saves them by regeneration. And what God can do, he can take a seed of faith that's been planted in you by the Holy Spirit, and he can take that very imperfect faith, and he can actually turn that into the salvation of your soul. And so you may just have a bare knowledge of Scripture, and yet God can save you by that imperfect knowledge. And that is the exact reason why that a child, six, seven years old, and we've even seen come here five years old, who realize that Jesus is the Savior. They don't have to have that great education. And so you don't have to have a degree from Harvard in order to get saved. Get saved. Everybody comes into salvation exactly the same way. We have to come in just like a little child putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I can tell you today with full confidence that if you will simply believe in Jesus, the Bible says that you can be saved. God will take away all of your sins. No verses to memorize. No catechisms that you have to go through. All that's required is simple, childlike faith. But I also promise you that when you get saved, you'll be just like these wise men. And that is that you'll want to find out more about Jesus. You'll seek him. You'll look for other things that the Word of God has to say. And so when you come to church, every time that you come here, it's an adventure in learning as you find out more about the mercy, the love, and the grace of God. So these are wise men, but they didn't know it all. Even the best Christians that are here today, the oldest Christian that is here, the most studious Christian, even this pastor that's standing before you this morning, none of us have ever touched bottom with God. There is still much more we can find out. And those who are truly wise are still following that light. They've seen the light, but they're still following it because it always leads to Jesus, and there's so much more that we can learn about him. The second thing I want to talk to you about This morning is the star that led them. Now, what about that star? They said, we've seen his star in the east, and we're come to worship him. Some people are very confused about where the star was. It was not an eastern star. That's what many people think. The star was in the east, but the star wasn't in the east. The star was in the west. The wise men were in the east, 
And they went to follow that star. If they'd start going east to try to follow a star, they'd end up in China rather than in Jerusalem. So they were traveling to the west to find Jesus. So these wise men, they have been studying Scripture. They were very expectant, as we just noticed. But they wondered, what kind of sign will God give? What will signify the birth of this king? Well, the Magi in those days were were both astronomers and astrologers. So what they would do is they would regularly watch the nighttime skies. And they would look at the sky and they would see if there was something unusual there. And as they studied the heavens, when they saw something unusual, they would interpret that as a sign. Somebody's trying to tell us something. God's trying to say something. Now, in their case, this nighttime phenomena that they saw was so unusual that it initiated their journey. They said, we've got to go find out what this star is. We have to see what it's all about. And so they followed the star. Now, that was exactly what they were looking for. Nothing could have spoken to them like this star. So this was something especially suited for them. It was exactly the kind of thing that they were looking for that would cause them to pack up all of their belongings, to get on those camels or however they got there, and to ride those hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem on an expensive journey, a long perilous journey. It was enough to get them going. Word of mouth would never have done that. That wouldn't have got them interested. A decree from the king that said you must go, that wouldn't have piqued their interest. But a star, I mean a glowing light in the sky, that star, something that couldn't happen any other way than by an act of a sovereign God, that brought their attention, that roused them to get up and go. Now they reacted to that because the king that they were looking for is the one who rules heaven and earth. He's the great king of all kings. And so to see a star, to see something so magnificent as that, that would cause them to go. And again, that is exactly the way that the gospel works. You can take an ancient story that's written on this fine India paper, bind it up in, in this case, a red binding of leather, or put it in a black binding, whatever, and that's not not necessarily going to cause any person to believe. There are people who pick up all different kinds of books. Uh, They read the tales of the Arabian Nights. They read fairy tales. Nobody believes that those things are true. And so it takes more than that. You know, even today, if if I could stand here and all of a sudden I began to levitate and float around this room, do you think that'd be enough to cause you to believe in Jesus? What what if uh, I could touch a person here that was blind and that person could now see? Would that cause you to believe? What if I was able to go and touch a lame person and suddenly that person could begin to walk? Or what if I could do this? What if we were having a funeral today and there was a casket right down here where this uh, table is and I told that person the casket to get up and they sat up and got out of that casket? Would that be enough to cause you to believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know, in fact, it wouldn't? Because all of those things Jesus did. He did it during his public ministry, and yet the numbers of people who actually believed in Jesus were very few and far between. It takes more than that for a person to believe. In fact, the Bible tells us that in his death, even those who said they were followers of Christ, they fled from him and they hid. They didn't want to be recognized with him. So are all these things, is, is that really what it takes to be a Christian? Do you have to see a miracle? And that's why... 
I really think that it's so strange that people believe that just one day I decide that I'm going to change uh, through my good sense, through my good choices. Now I decide that I'm going to become a Christian and believing in Christ is just an automatic thing. Whatever I please, I will believe. That won't happen. It takes something supernatural. You see, what it takes is the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you and to make you realize that this gospel of Christ is true. It's God who opens up your eyes and he shines in that light. It's not you, it's always God. And that's why all the glory for any person that's ever been saved belongs to God and God alone. Now these men, they could never have made this journey unless exactly what they needed happened. There was a star There was an act of a sovereign God who got them up and pointed them to Jesus. And that's what the gospel is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. It is a light that points you to Jesus. And today, as always, friends, that light is still shining. Now, there's something else here that's very peculiar in the story, I think. And that is that this star was intended for only them to see. Now, in our nativity scenes and what we see all the time, that there's a star that's shining up there and the star is shining over the nativity and people are coming and following that star to get to Jesus. Some people have described that star as perhaps a convergence of the planets. Perhaps Jupiter and Saturn came together and the light of that was so bright that they interpret that as being a star and that's what led them to Jesus. Now, that is okay if you're trying to do away with the supernatural, perhaps, but it has problems. Planets don't stay in one place. I mean, a planet doesn't stay in one place long enough to lead these men on what perhaps was even a two-year journey to come and see Jesus. And then a planet is not definitive enough to, to point out one single house where Jesus was among thousands of houses. You see, if you put a planet over Bethlehem, That's a planet that's also over Jerusalem that's in the center there. It's over Galilee that's way up to the north. It's a planet also shining over the Dead Sea that's way to the south. So how is that planet ever going to point somebody to this one house where Jesus was? So some people say, well, it's not a planet then. Perhaps it's a meteor. Well, we all know what meteors are. Can you follow a meteor? I mean, tonight you could go out in your backyard and maybe you'll see one flash across the sky. You better be pretty fast to follow that and find out where it goes. But this was a very special light. It appeared to them as a star and it was near enough for them to follow. It was so near that it was able to stand over one house and show these men the way. Now, it's interesting here that when these wise men came to Jerusalem... They said, we have seen his star. We were in the east and we saw that star. And then they followed that light all the way to Jerusalem and there it disappeared for a time. Now, look into this story. I said that this is the only place in the Bible where we find that the wise men are mentioned. And if you'll look in the Bible, in these 12 verses that we just read, I want you to show me where anybody in Jerusalem also saw the star. Now, if this was a light that was shining so brightly that it caught the attention of these men that were far away in this place of Babylon or some other point east, even further away. It was shining so brightly that it led them on this perhaps two-year journey to reach Jerusalem. Why didn't the people in Jerusalem say, well, we saw that star too? 
We've been wondering what that was about. Could you explain to us? I mean, that star's been here all this time, and we have no idea what that star is about. Nobody in Jerusalem was buzzing about this star. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but there were Jews living seven miles away from where Jesus was born, and they didn't go follow a star to find Jesus. But these Gentiles, who were hundreds of miles away, they did see the star, and they knew a lot about it. Why did they know it? The only, the only thing I could say is they're the only ones who saw the star. God intended it for them. Now, do you understand about this, folks, when we talk about the gospel and how we compare the gospel to that light that's shining, that there are people who are next door to the church and they can't see the light. There are churches all over Sonoma County. There are 500,000 people in this county and very few Just a pittance of people ever see this light. Well, what was that light then? Well, I believe that it was a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. There's an interesting story in the Old Testament about Moses and the children of Israel when they came to the crossing of the Red Sea. When they came to the sea, there was no way that they could get across it. There was Pharaoh's army that was hotly pursuing them. They came to the sea and they can't get over it. Now, you all know that story. You've seen the Ten Commandments on television 8,000 times now. So you know all about this story. Here are the children of Israel. They're at the Red Sea. They can't get across, and here comes Pharaoh's army behind them. Well, Moses held out his staff over the sea, and that sea parted, and Israel walked across on dry ground. But you still have the problem of Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army's coming quickly, and there's a reason why Israel was not destroyed when Pharaoh's army came and they walked across the Red Sea. And it's actually told to us in Exodus chapter 14. Here it says, And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to them. That's to the Egyptians. But it gave light by night to these. That's the Israelites so that one came not near the other all the night. What was it that kept Israel safe? There was a cloud. A cloud came, and on one side of this cloud, it was pitch black darkness. There was a fog that was so thick that the Egyptians couldn't even see their hands in front of their face. I mean, they they didn't know where to move, didn't know where to go, and so out of fear, they sat there all night long in that darkness, not being able to see. But on the other side of that cloud... There was light. On the other side, Moses stretched out his hand and he divided the sea. All that night long, there was a wind that blew and it divided the waters. It dried a path right through the middle of the sea. And in the middle of the night, there was light for Israel to cross that sea. So darkness on one side and there's light on the other side. What is that light? Well, that light was the Holy Spirit of God. It's the light that led them all the way across. Now, when the wise men came to Jerusalem, they followed a light that no one else could see. This was the light that led them to Jesus. Now, do you wonder why, then, of these 500,000 people living in Sonoma County, that all of them today are not here in this church or in some church that teaches and preaches the truth of God's Word? Do you wonder why those people are not there? Well, here's the reason, and that is as, as you, 
As much as you being enlightened supernaturally, they have been blinded supernaturally. Much like what happened to the Egyptians. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in unto them. So these people out there, all around us, have been powerfully blinded by the enemy of their souls. The devil has blinded their eyes to the gospel, and they won't believe because of that. But who do you think has the power to lift that blindness? Who is it that can open the eyes of people so they can see? I mean, can they do that by themselves? No more than the Egyptians could see their way through that thick cloud of darkness. You can't open your eyes by yourselves to see Jesus Christ. And that's because you have no ability to see. It's only when the Holy Spirit reaches through that darkness that he opens up our eyes to the truth. Now today, I could preach the same kind of sermon that's being preached in pulpits all across America. I could tell you that it is within your power to see that light. And I would say to you that if you'll try just a little bit harder, if you'll think positively, if you'll think good thoughts... If you'll give up a lot of your bad habits and you'll try your very best to be a good person, then you will see that light. I could tell you that. But I would just be fostering more untruths about wise men. The truth is you can't see that light. As wise as these men were, they could not have seen this light unless God allowed them to see it. It was not in their ability. And neither do you have the ability to see this light on your own. God has to show it to you. And so if you've not seen that light today, the thing that I encourage you to do is get down on your knees and pray to the Almighty God that he will allow you to see that light. You see, you don't deserve to see the light. I don't deserve it. If, if seeing this light was dependent upon my actions or your actions, if it was dependent upon how godly that you are and your love for all things godly, you'd never see that light. We're sinners The Bible teaches that we have broken the laws of God. The eternal God of this universe has been offended by our sin, and there is a penalty for that sin, and there is a price to be paid, and the price is far too high. We can't pay that price. The only one who can pay it is God himself. And God, in fact, did pay that price. It was paid by the God-man. It was paid by that baby who was born in a manger who later grew into a man and went to the cross to pay for my sins and for yours. And it's only by an act of the gracious God of heaven that we're able to understand that, to even to realize that it's true. This is a light that's not sought after. Those that are nearest to this light cannot see it. The Jews who were near did not see the light of the star. But the wise men... The men who were far off, Gentiles in a faraway country, they saw that light because God allowed them to see it. It was an act of a gracious, sovereign Lord. Now, let me close my message today with this thought. Now, next week, we're going to come to part number two, and we'll actually get there as the wise men come into the house and they see Jesus, that one they diligently sought. But let me close this part of the message today with this thought. If you are far off, the blood of Christ can bring you near. The gospel light is what leads us to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wrote extensively about the depravity, the inability of man. 
Here's what he said to those that were far off. He said that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What was the light that brought the wise men to Jesus? I would submit to you, friends, that it was the light of the cross. Jesus would not be good news for anyone born on this planet if it had not been for the cross. The only thing that Christ's life would do if he came here would bring judgment. If he came here and he lived a perfect life as he did, and then he went back into heaven and there was no cross, then the perfection of his life would serve only one thing, and that is to heap even more condemnation upon you. I mean, in fact, what Christ came to do was not to put more condemnation on us. The scripture says that the world was already condemned. The world is already dying without him. And so a holy God in heaven or a holy God on earth would do nothing more than cause you further condemnation. And that's because we cannot live up to God's standard. So Christ came. And he came not to heap more condemnation upon us. He came to save us by his death, by his blood on the cross. The Bible teaches that you who are so far away in sin, you can be brought near to God. Now, perhaps today you came to see a baby in a manger. Perhaps you came to see their pure, sweet innocence and something that would make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. But do you know that only two of the gospel writers, as I said in the very beginning of the message, only two mentioned the birth of Jesus. But all four of them do focus upon his death. Jesus had to die. And this is why Matthew says in that first chapter, verse number 18, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. How will he do that? He did it by the cross. And friend, if you're far off today, you can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God will always lead you to the cross. And so I invite you today to come to the cross where he died and not to the manger where he was born. Jesus died on a cross, so trust him, and that's the way you are saved. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to be together to discuss your word. We thank you, Lord, for these men, these wise men who came to see Jesus and that you opened their eyes so they could see that light. And even today, I pray that you might open the eyes of some sinner today that they might see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that they would be brought near to you, brought near to that cross where your blood was shed for us. Speak to some heart today and bring them in, Lord. Bring them by that light to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.